This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. It's not as traditional or pigeonholed as you might have seen. You're seeing a real diversification across genres and across platforms. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience and this community and the team on a greater scale. You know, the team of the past 30 years. We aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. The game's about to start. Let's make some noise. All right, yes, welcome to the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. My name is Tyler Kern. I'll be your host for today's episode. We have a lot of great stuff coming up on the show today. We'll have a feature interview uh, with a guy named Alec Weber, who works for a company called Blinkfire Analytics, and they're doing something fascinating with social media that I think you'll find really interesting in how it revolutionizes how sports teams can leverage their brands that they have as sponsors. So certainly a really interesting interview. You'll want to stick around for that. After that, I'll talk to Skylar Richards. He's the director of sports science for FC Dallas, the soccer club here in North Texas. And he's going to talk through some of the ways that they're working with their athletes to try to keep them healthy, to try to stay on the front end of injuries, to prevent injuries, and talk about some of the new technologies and the exciting companies that are doing some new things in the world of sports science. So you'll want to stick around for those things in particular. We also have a news analysis piece where our correspondent Shelby will be talking to Amy Mitchell. She's a uh, entertainment attorney, and she's going to talk about a decision that Taylor Swift recently made with her album deal that has wide-reaching implications throughout the rest of the music industry. So you'll also want to stick around for that interview that is coming up as well. But before we get to any of that, I want to dive in. It's Friday morning. Last night, the Dallas Cowboys beat the New Orleans Saints 13-10. to And I want to talk a little bit, not so much about the game, but about the Cowboys in particular because they're a fascinating franchise to me. Uh, not just because I grew up here in Dallas and was born and raised a Cowboys fan, but because they've managed to accomplish something, and I'm not entirely sure how they've been able to do it. So I, I was raised a Cowboys fan. I was uh, young when the Cowboys won the three Super Bowls in the early 90s. I think I was five, uh, four or five when they won their first Super Bowl. Uh, in the 90s, back in 92. Uh, you know, so I, I think I was between the ages of five and eight during those three Super Bowl wins uh, there in those four years. And um, that was a magical time to be a kid growing up in Dallas and being a Cowboys fan, right? I had posters on my wall of the triplets of Irvin, Aikman, and, and Emmett Smith. And I uh, knew every player by, you know, number, by name. I could tell you that 61 was Nate Newton. And, you know, uh, just go on down the list. 67 was Russell Maryland. Uh, you name it, I could have named that player based on his number, whatever else you wanted to know about him. And it was my uh, young party trick as a kid. Um, And I think I got lulled into this attitude of, oh, your team just naturally challenges for championships every year. I hadn't really gotten to the point in my sports fandom where I comprehended the idea that your team wasn't always in contention to win championships, that there were teams like the Browns that perennially uh, were down at the bottom of the league and and looking to try to get out of that, and you would go 25, 30, 40 years without having any type of measurable success. Well, now uh, (laughs) it's 23 years since the last time the Cowboys won the Super Bowl, and I came across the list for the top 10 most valuable sports teams in the world list that Forbes puts out on a regular basis. And now, uh, if you follow this list with any regularity, you know that it's not a surprise to see the Cowboys at or near the top of this list. It's something they do year in and year out. But you look at some of the other teams, they're in the top six, 
I'll read them for you. It's the Cowboys at number one, Manchester United at two, Real Madrid at three, Barcelona at four, the New York Yankees at five, and the New England Patriots at six. Of those teams, the Cowboys have had the longest drought without any measurable success of any of those teams. I think the Yankees last won the World Series back in 2009. Uh, Manchester United last won a Premier League title in 2013. And those are enduring brands similar to the Cowboys, but they've also had more measurable success in recent years than the Cowboys have for sure. Real Madrid and Barcelona win things year in and year out. Same with the New England Patriots, always in the Super Bowl, it feels like. But the Cowboys, 23 years without a Super Bowl. And in that time, it's not like they've been challenging for, you know, NFC championships or getting to Super Bowls and just not winning them. Uh, There really hasn't been any... Uh, landmark success in those 23 years for the Cowboys to really hang their hat on, yet they're still at the top of this list, and that's absolutely fascinating to me, and it speaks to the job, I think, that Jerry Jones does marketing this team and putting it forward as a brand, which I think is... Uh, probably the thing that he's best at. The the team on the field certainly looks like it's turning a corner maybe this season, playing well down the stretch, maybe going towards the playoffs. They sit at the top of the NFC East as we sit right now. But it's still fascinating to me that this team, despite the fact that they haven't won anything in the last 23 years, uh, sits at number one on the Forbes Most Valuable Sports Teams list. Um, So I wanted to start that off today as I was thinking about that while I was watching the game last night uh, as the Cowboys beat the New Orleans Saints. Just how fascinating it was uh, that the Cowboys are able to, uh, year in and year out, remain one of the most valuable franchises despite the fact uh, that... They really don't win all that often. All right, coming up next, we're going to get to Shelby's interview with Amy Mitchell, uh, the attorney from the entertainment industry, just talking about Taylor Swift's new record deal and why it matters so much for the music industry. So you'll want to stick around for that, as well as the great features we have coming up on this week's episode of the show. So stick around. More of that coming up next. Sorry, the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. She's busy negotiating a multi-million dollar payday for thousands of artists and paving the way for a new era of artist advocacy. Hey everyone, my name is Shelby Skirhawk with MarketScale Sports and Entertainment. Now, to be fair, Taylor's been standing up for artist rights since 2015 when she went toe-to-toe with Apple. This month, she switched record labels to Universal Music Group and, in the process, negotiated a multi-million dollar payday for thousands of music artists on Universal. So what does that mean for other artists and the entertainment industry at large? It could set the standard for artist collaboration, where musicians advocate for and help each other succeed. Writing on Instagram to announce her new deal with UMG, Swift wrote, there was one condition which meant more to me than any other deal point. As part of the new contract with Universal Music Group, I asked that any sale of their Spotify shares result in a distribution of money to their artist, non-recoupable. Recoupable costs are paid advances to artists against the eventual royalties for their work, so they must earn back that amount before they can start getting paid. Swift added, I see this as a sign that we are headed towards positive change for creators, a goal that I'm never going to stop trying to help to achieve in whatever ways that I can. Is this a case of a rising tide lifts all boats? Austin-based entertainment attorney Amy Mitchell is optimistic that's the case. I would hope so. I mean, I certainly think that there's a groundswell right now among uh, the music community trying to understand new initiatives like the Music Modernization Act. Musicians historically have not been very good at coming together on the same platform. 
I was very heartened to see somebody like Taylor Swift that actually has the leverage to go up against a universal music group and use that clout to be able to raise up the royalty positions of other artists within that label that, you know, maybe emerging artists, maybe they still have a huge debt to their label. And now because of Taylor's actions, they're able to benefit as well. The result is certainly a win for the artist community. Mitchell is a transactional lawyer who practices entertainment law with a focus on music, television, and film law issues. But Mitchell is a musician herself, so she understands the artist's perspective. What are those primary challenges that musicians and and producers face in the current music industry in regards to all of these rights and and, uh, royalties and such? Well, I think a lot of it is that so many platforms are sprouting up all the time, and it's very hard to keep up with that. And lots of times the accounting is not transparent. So I don't think many artists would be in a position to know what kind of deal a universal has negotiated with Spotify or with YouTube or with any of these various platforms that are quite popular. I think that is one of the big challenges. There's so much gray area. And so the artists are really in the dark. What's brilliant about what Taylor did with this particular revenue stream is that she honed in on, we will know if they've sold their shares. I mean, we'll be able to find that out. And they can't hide behind this recoupment situation, which is what labels usually do, where they can run up this huge bill, basically, that the artist has to pay off before they're entitled to any revenue streams from the label. And so what's brilliant is that she was like, okay, at least with regard to Spotify's share sell-off, that's going to be on a non-recoupable basis. So you have to pay out your artist straight away, regardless of whether they've made the label a dollar or if they've made this label a million dollars. That's one of those things where you just say non-recoupable basis and it's an automatic win for musicians. Almost everything in a record contract, um, you're going to have to kind of, quote-unquote, pay off your debt before you see another dollar. Is there then the hope that this will kind of cause a groundswell and there will be more pressure to make this kind of the standard practice of business? It will cause people to start reevaluating the music industry accounting system that has been in place for decades because it's really stacked against musicians. And so many of the musicians, you know, I've met with over my career and I was a musician first, they sign deals that they don't understand or they didn't have the money to have somebody look over the contract in advance. And so they just sign on for these horrendous terms. And then if they do well, they might be stuck under those horrendous terms for six albums, which sounds like what happened with Taylor Swift and Big Machine. And one thing I kind of, I've been thinking about historically musicians not being able to come together. I do think a lot of it has to do with natural competition you know, and a lot of artists, they relied on getting radio airplay. You know, if you could get radio airplay, then you're going to get interest in people purchasing your music. I mean, there's limited spectrum available for them to, to get heard. So I think there was a different kind of competition among musicians than perhaps in some other entertainment industries. So I think it's is less competitive to all be working together to improve the terms for creators. And then there's, you know, this whole lovely thing called precedent. So now people say, hey, there's a precedent here. Yeah, Taylor was able to negotiate that. So yeah, I think like, all of that is to the artist's benefit. Definitely. And it sounds like what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Like, to, in order for me to win, you don't have to lose. Like, everybody can come out ahead. Right. All right, record labels. Look what you made Taylor do. She's become this generation's most powerful negotiator for creator rights. With Market Scale Sports and Entertainment, I'm Shelby Skirhawk.
All right, that was correspondent Shelby Skurhog keeping us up to date on everything going on in the music world, especially with Taylor Swift's new record deal. It was really, really fascinating. Thank you for that, Shelby. Coming up next is an interview with Alec Weber of Blinkfire Analytics, and I think it's really fascinating, a really interesting conversation because what Blinkfire is doing really happens at the intersection of sports and social media, which we're seeing more and more of these days. We're seeing more teams utilize social media, finding new ways to leverage it. And I think Blinkfire is going to play a large role moving forward in how teams do this and how brands and sports franchises interact uh, here in the future. So it's going to be a fascinating interview and one that I think will help shape the future of sports and social media for years and years to come. So you're going to want to hear this interview with Alec Weber coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, joining me now on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast is Alec Weber. He's the Business Development Manager at Blinkfire Analytics. Alec, thank you so much for joining me today on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So before we get into what Blinkfire does, I want to know a little bit more about your background, how you ended up working on the business side of sports, and how you ended up at Blinkfire. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm here. I've been at Blinkfire now about a year prior to that. Um, my last job really is the whole reason I'm working at Blinkfire. I worked for a sports media agency called Optimum Sports. And during my time there, I spent a lot of time working on several national brands that are very prominent within sports. And a lot of them worked with almost every team across the board, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NFL were kind of the focus along with college. And during my time managing these relationships, you know, working day to day with all these different teams and schools, I kind of found myself wanting to know being kind of the analytics nerd that I am is like, what is the value that we're getting out of these partnerships? How much exposure is driving from this partnership? Or, you know, we're spending a lot more money with this team compared to that team. How can we find a way to kind of compare and contrast each, see which one is driving a better ROI. And during kind of the three and a half, four years that I was there, we didn't really have a great solution to that. Um, very familiar with Nielsen and Repicom from like the TV broadcast side, which seemed to be very emphasized about the exposure from broadcasts. But what really kind of turned my head and just completely changed my the way that I looked at our partnerships was last summer when we were going through our NBA season recaps. Several of our NBA partners shared with us information about the value some of our marquee assets were getting from a social perspective. And what I mean by that is imagine a highlight play happens and a guy makes um has an amazing dunk or you know the lebron block which is famous during the 2016 nba finals when he had that chase down block on andre iguodala several assets got a lot of exposure uh from the social highlights that were played on the likes like bleacher report house of highlights not to mention the team channels so when i was able to finally see someone quantify this and report the value back to us, it really opened my eyes to, wow, like, holy smokes, like, we need to figure out a way to really incorporate social into our partnerships to really amplify and maximize the potential of our, our partnerships. And as I started to ask a lot of these teams questions about how they're tracking this information, how they're getting it, how they're reporting it, all that good stuff, they kind of probably got a little bit annoyed with me and all the questions I had and just introduced me to the people directly and several of those teams were, were using Blinkfire. So that's kind of how I led 
or kind of my transition from my previous job at Optimum to now Blinkfire. So then that brings us around to what you're doing at Blinkfire, and that is utilizing uh, new technology to try to, on some level, quantify the value that teams are getting from, or the value that brands are getting from uh, exposure from team social content. Is that is that about what you guys are doing? Yeah, that's you're, you're spot on. So the premise of what we do here at Blinkfire and the foundation of everything is identifying brand exposure and social content. So a big thing for us, and this is another big project I worked on at my previous job was the Jersey patch within the NBA, knowing that uh, it's kind of, you know, this, you know, Blinkfire actually changed my, um, my opinion of it complete 180 as I originally thought it wasn't a very valuable asset, just given the, the logo placement, how small the patch was on the Jersey, knowing that on broadcast, you're going to see these players moving up and down. Whereas, from a social perspective, now they're able to quantify the value. Like imagine a happy birthday post for LeBron, you know, now that he's with the Lakers, think of Wish on the patch. We're able to, through our computer vision technology, identify that logo and report back to the Lakers or whoever the value that they're getting out of that asset. So it just allows another lens to see, you know, these assets get value from broadcasts from an arena, you know, the fans showing up to the game and social is a big component of that. And now that you're able to quantify it, um, you know, that's something that a lot of our team partners have really liked. So there's a computer program then that, that, that analyzes a team's social media accounts and then picks up on the logos and then quantifies it. Is that, is that basically how uh, this is all working together that, that you then run a, a team's social media all their content, every video, every uh, picture, everything through this program? Correct. We're actively tracking, I don't know the exact number, but thousands of teams globally. I mean, um, anything from down from the G League to some cases, you know, small college to um, the EPL, Champions League, um, boxing, cricket, like pretty much every sport globally um, that you want to know of, we're actively tracking and we're just identifying the images um, for these different brands. Um, so yeah, that pretty much sums it up. And then the way we put a value to it, which is, I think is something that's very unique about us compared to, to some other people is we're very transparent. It's not um, you know, hidden valuation or formula. We're very transparent about it and that we wanna mirror the way that brands are paying for social advertising. So what we like to say is, if this is the value that we're putting towards it, we're telling our brands or the team partners, like, this is how much a brand would have to pay to get that much of exposure on that particular platform. So in the past, it felt like social media was kind of the Wild West in the way that teams were using it. Uh, it felt like the, it was a it was a tool they weren't quite sure how to harness. But then using some of your analytic, uh, some of the information that you're able to provide, some of the data you're providing from uh, just analyzing their so social media platforms, it's also helping them harness it and use social media in uh, smarter ways and leveraging it, so it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing, and just having been out a couple, uh, visited a couple of our team partners over the past couple of weeks, you know, talking to some of the people that have been in this industry for a lot more years than I have, 20, 30 years, I think the biggest thing is there's never been a tool before to really quantify this. And it's one thing to know it exists. I think everyone acknowledged the value that social was providing. Like, hey, you know, these highlight reels and clips and these posts that we're putting on our social platforms that are getting lots of engagements and views, there, there's value there. But I think up until about this point or about a year ago, no one had really quantified it. So there was really no 
hard numbers to look at. And I think that really changes perceptions when you can actually see a dollar figure that, oh, wow, the, you know, the Jersey patch drives millions, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars from social. That completely changes the way you know, you're looking at it compared to before. Everything was very broadcast heavy and focused with how assets and partnerships were sold because there was all these metrics and numbers behind why it should cost this. And because social content really hasn't been factored in before, are teams then taking this data and going back to companies you know, and brands and saying, uh, you're getting X amount of value from our social content. Uh, next time it, we renegotiate our deal, we're going to factor this in. Is that something that you've seen happen? Absolutely. I think that's 2.0. I think right now in the market, what you're seeing is a lot of these teams are just now starting to work with companies. Maybe this is their first year, second year that they're working with someone like Blinkfire to track the social value that they're driving for their brand partners. And a lot of these deals, I mean, I keep uh, bringing up the Jersey patch, but it's just a great example to talk about that having spoke to half a dozen or so of these teams at my prior job about looking into the patch opportunity, none of them mentioned the value that was going to be driven on social. Most of the times it was just a footnote like, hey, we acknowledge it, but that's not something we're comfortable or have done any studies that to really show the value that they're going to get out of it. And I think what you're going to see is when these renewals are happening, knowing that we're in year two of the three-year Jersey patch trial, I think a lot of these values that the money that these teams are getting from these brand partners is going to going to be an uh, increase by a significant number, just knowing that the value that they're getting, because as I mentioned earlier, like some of these teams are getting tens of millions of dollars just between the likes of House of Highlights, Bleach Report, ESPN, posting all this content that, you know, one post could get like 10 million views that if you're, you know, with a prominent team or, or whatever, it can drive a ton of value that otherwise or before and up until this point wasn't really captured or reported. I think of like maybe the most, uh, my, my most vivid memory of a, a brand being highlighted in a, in a specific video clip was the Tiger Woods putt from uh, probably 10 years ago now uh, where the, the ball just hung on the lip of the cup and the Nike logo was just perfectly displayed. I don't know if you remember that, but that's like standing out in my mind as something that I wish, we, like I wish it was possible to go back and quantify how much that was worth. But you're mentioning the, the jersey patches and, uh, and with the tools that you guys have at your disposal at Blinkfire, uh, this seems like it's very uh, team-friendly. Like Teams are understanding how much, um, how much exposure these brands are getting based on, on their, their jerseys and, and the idea that they could may potentially go back and renegotiate those deals in the future um, seems like a very team-friendly thing. But with some of the tools that you have at your disposal um, that, that highlights, hey, here's where the, the brand logos are, I'm sure brands are also uh, pleased to at least have a heightened awareness of all of the different times where their brand has been displayed in highlight videos or on Instagram or, or any of those particular things. For sure. I mean, there's definitely two parts to it. One, the teams are so excited about it because for the longest time, they've never been able to quantify the exposure or value that they're driving. So to be able to show this, and then there's kind of ways for them um, to gamify it in a way, knowing that there's these strategic insights that they have of, hey, if we took a picture or post a picture where the camera angle is tilted a little bit this way or that way, we can really capture, now that we know that we're tracking this value, we can ensure, you know, we post this picture where the, the brand partner on the outfield wall sign is completely in the background. You know, we're going we're gonna to drive value for that. Whereas before, it wasn't a big deal if it was cut off because they didn't really have any way to track that. So that's one reason teams are really excited about it because they know, like, you know, they're putting in some cases close to 10,000 posts a year 
So there's a lot of opportunity for them to drive a ton of value. So that's where they get excited about it. From the brand side, it's, hey, we want to know like what's the what is the value that we're getting, just as I kind of alluded to at the very beginning um, during my days at Optimum. You know, you want to know what, you know, if you're spending a lot, millions, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars in the marketplace, you want to know what partners are driving more value than others, what partners, what of my team partners are um, doing a better job than others, or what best practices can we take and apply that to others so we can really maximize and amplify the ROI that we're getting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I wonder now, uh, I read an article the other day from uh, searchenginejournal.com uh, that talked about how Instagram's the fastest growing social media network these days. And I, I wonder how much um, a growing uh, amount of social media users utilizing visual content as opposed to maybe in the past it was more, uh, you know, Twitter was more word-based and, and, you know, and Facebook was as well. But now with Instagram growing so quickly and so much more content being visually focused, I wonder how much that's really helped lift up the work that you guys are doing as uh, as pictures kind of become a bigger and bigger deal. Pictures and video become more easily shareable and uh, and easily distributed. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's something we see as a trend for sure. And that images tend to drive the majority of the value for these brand partners. Just when you think about a still image, like and we keep harping on the Jersey patch, but you think about like a happy birthday post and uh, a shot from media day where the guy's clearly forward facing the patches right there. It's very easy to identify. Okay. That's the logo of that specific team partner. Whereas uh, a video highlight, you know, the play is happening. The camera's moving. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces. Sometimes you might have players running in front of signage. So the, the value isn't quite as great just knowing that it's, you know, th there's a lot more variables that go into it. So that's definitely something that we see in a lot of teams have become very smart about. Yeah, you want to post your video highlights and content as content, but some of the behind the scenes stuff or good action shots can go a long way to kind of uh, gamify it, if you will. To, to make sure that they're getting, driving the most value for their partners. And then another point to that, just talking about Instagram, is out of, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the cases that we see is that Instagram is by far the most engaged with platform for the teams. It can be anywhere from five to almost, in some cases, 20 times the amount of engagements they receive on Instagram compared to Facebook or Twitter, even though Instagram usually tends to be the third most valuable platform, which I think, you know, further reinforces your point that the rise of Instagram and, and the image content and how much people want to consume that. So as you see those developments and see maybe the potential of, of deals being renegotiated and, and teams using this data, uh, what else do you see coming down the pipeline uh, in, these, in this particular intersection of social media and the business side of sports? What do you in particular see as, hey, maybe this is the future of where this whole thing is going? I think what we're going to see next is just looking at the past, knowing that a lot of these partnerships and sponsorships were driven from a broadcast side where you know saying that hey we know it's going to do x on broadcast this is the value it's a very prominent sign gets picked up a lot on broadcast i think you're going to see a complete flip and refer uh reversal um not saying it's going to happen in the next couple of years but maybe five ten years down the line especially given the how growing social media is and the shift in consumption from traditional media to social media i think you're going to see a lot more partnerships that are driven by social media first meaning 
team or brands only care about the social assets and the other stuff is more ancillary, just knowing that that's where the value is at and that's where the eyeballs. I think that's the biggest thing is that eyeballs are shifting from traditional to social and that's going to be more of a forefront of the conversation. Whereas up until this point, I think that's kind of been just like a footnote or like nice to have, but not a focal point of a um a very robust partnership. I'm really curious what you think about baseball because in a lot of ways to me, baseball feels like uh, a sport where there's so much untapped potential and so much room for growth in terms of what they do social media wise, in terms of what teams do social media wise. I'm curious just what your thoughts are and what your general perception of where baseball is in this whole realm of things right now. Yeah. So a big thing uh, I like to bring up or like to talk about with baseball is NBA gets a lot of credit for what they've done with being kind of taking the op, well, not op- necessarily an opposite approach, but they have a very laissez-faire type of approach when it comes to their social content that anyone can take video and post it on their own, make their own fan pages. Some of the other leagues haven't quite taken the same approach. Um, MLB's gotten some criticism with how restrictive their content has been on social and taking fan pages down. I know there was a lot of uh, stink not too long ago in the spring where um, a pitching coach made these cool, had an Instagram platform where he was uploading videos of pitchers throwing different pitches to kind of just teach how they're throwing it. And that got taken down because he didn't have the rights. So complete kind of different uh, philosophical approaches to that. And I think it's very fascinating that with baseball, they have to split the revenue with BAM. If they post certain content away, I mean, like through a digital overlay or tagging them within the content but i think there's a lot of really creative workarounds i think baseball can kind of benefit the most from this kind of emphasis and focus towards social and that they have 162 games the scale that they have is enormous compared to the other leagues that they're posting every day i mean they post by far the most out of any of the teams just given the number of games that they have and there's so many great opportunities for action shots, especially at a MLB ballpark where there's so much signage. I mean, every square inch of the stadium, there is signage somewhere. And a great example I like to think about with baseball is just knowing that the, the players always have these goofy pregame warmups, handshake, ritual routines, whatever you want to call them, and the dugouts. You know, every team has a dugout partner. That's great content, organic content that fans love to consume that – you know, some teams do a really clever job of posting like a pregame warm-up shower video of their guy doing a cool handshake with all the guy, different guys in the, the dugout. And meanwhile, their their premier dugout partner, who's probably paying them millions of dollars, is getting all this exposure. So I think with baseball, there's a massive opportunity to really capitalize with strategic content and being clever with what you post of, hey, you know, our, our guy made a great diving catch in left field. Let's snap a good shot of him when he was making that catch. And, oh, our wall partner who's paying us a lot of money just so happens to be perfectly in the background of that shot. I think there's so much opportunity, probably more so than any sport, just due to the nature of the stadium and the the various signage throughout MLB stadiums. Baseball, as opposed to some of the other leagues in the United States or maybe around the world, seems to be slower to adapt to uh, newer ideas and newer social media ideas so are are they kind of behind the curve when it comes to highlights and that sort of thing from what you've noticed i wouldn't necessarily like i mean i think everyone's kind of behind a little bit with the nba they definitely were very forward thinking with 
how or not restrictive they were with the content. So I think that really helped them get a leg up on the rest of the leagues. And I think you're starting to see other leagues are following suit. Uh, I just noticing yesterday when I was watching NFL games that uh, both Bleacher Report and House of Highlights were posting a lot of NFL content, you know, different highlights and plays. And I don't think a year ago you were seeing that, if at all. So I think they're starting to catch on to realize. And I think um, it was fascinating. I like to listen and follow House of Highlights quite closely. Omar even mentioned it not too long ago um, when he did a podcast that they, you know, a couple of years ago, he was being asked to take down any type of content that wasn't, you know, that was with a specific league. And now those leagues are asking him to post content about their leagues. So I think you've seen a shift in their thinking. Um, you know, are they probably a little bit behind the eight ball? I'd lean towards yes, but I think they'll get there and realizing that, you know, this is a great opportunity to really, I think a lot of these social platforms are an avenue to the brand ambassadors for your league. And I think the NBA really was on the forefront with thinking like, wow, House of Highlights can really generate a lot of popularity um, for us. So let's just keep up them posting. It's almost like it's almost like social media and some of these, you know, Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts, like you're mentioning, have kind of replaced SportsCenter in a way of, uh, hey, here's cool stuff that you need to watch. You know, and SportsCenter for years used to be the place where you went to go see highlights and you'd watch, you know, uh, an entire 30-minute episode of SportsCenter just to see your team on there for 10 seconds. But now with these social media channels, uh, maybe leagues are kind of catching on to the idea that uh, that this kind of distribution is good and, and good for your team and good for your league uh, if, uh, you know, if, if it's highlighted on there and, and used correctly. Absolutely. I think you're spot on there. I mean, I remember back in the day just watching baseball tonight, hours and hours and hours. My dad watching all the reruns just because knowing like, hey, they might show one new clip from the game. And, you know, you only see three highlight plays all night from your favorite team if you didn't uh, happen to catch the game. And now with social media, you know, you miss a home run. I can pull it up within three minutes after it happens. And it's probably on social media with some account, especially with the NBA. So I, I think you're spot on there just knowing like, Fans ultimately want to consume this in bite size. I think that's what's so great about social is that, you know, with how busy people are, you know, you see attention spans are reducing. I think the latest study said that the average attention span is like seven or eight seconds. So people like to consume content in short bite sized clips. And I think social is there to perfectly capitalize on that. And yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, highlight play happens. Hey, I maybe missed it because I wasn't watching the game or or, you know, I was watching the game, I was too busy on my phone, I can pull up, you know, and just go to certain accounts I follow that push content out for my team. And I'm going to see the latest dunk or game winning shot or uh, great defensive play. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, because content is king, right? That's that's what we say over here in our, in our you know, our side of the business, I suppose, is that uh, if you have good content, people are going to come and watch it. And it seems like more nowadays leagues are trying to figure out here how, how can we change the game? How can we uh, fix the product on the field to attract more eyeballs? When really maybe the idea is how do we get more eyeballs just on the game in short spurts that maybe then convinces people that, hey, watching the game on a regular basis is you know is not that bad it's it's actually pretty good it doesn't need to be faster you don't need to change this or that really you just need to get people to watch it in the first place yeah and i think that's exactly what uh adam silver and the nba were doing when i think he related to um his analogy was like social media snacks in terms of hey you know you feed them enough snacks they're gonna get hungry they're gonna want more ultimately like yeah you can show them a bunch of highlight clips of lebron dunking but 
eventually they're going to want to watch the full games or watch most of the games. So I think you're spot on there. Hey, I really appreciate the time today. Yeah, this was great coming on. I appreciate uh, you inviting me. Happy to come back anytime. Excellent. Excellent. That is Alec Weber. He is the business development manager at Blinkfire Analytics. Thanks again to Alec Weber. I hope you really enjoyed that interview, uh, learning more about what Blinkfire Analytics is doing. And I really am curious to see, as this goes forward, how teams decide to use the information that a company like Blinkfire is providing them and how that helps evolve the market moving forward as it relates to how organizations interact with brands when it comes to sponsorships and dollars and that sort of thing. All right, coming up next is my interview with Skylar Richards. He's the director of sports science and the head athletic trainer for FC Dallas, the soccer team here in North Texas. And I'm really interested and curious to talk to Skylar just about how they measure performance in their athletes and what they do to try to keep players in tip-top shape throughout a long and grueling season. Uh, And so I think some of the ways that FC Dallas is going about it is really innovative and really interesting. And I think you're going to really find that Skyler's kind of on the forefront of a lot of new ways to keep players healthy and to keep players performing at their peak levels uh, for longer periods of time. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview, and that is coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, joining me now on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast is Skylar Richards. He's the head athletic trainer for FC Dallas and also the director of sports science for all of their different clubs, not just the first team. So what that means is he's in charge of eight different teams of doing the sports science for them. So we're going to hear a little bit more about what that means from him right now. Skylar, thank you so much for joining me on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. No, really glad to be here. I'm excited to, to talk and and see what cool things we can talk about and shed some light on what we're doing at FC Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Obviously, we have a little bit of a connection there at FC Dallas. So I just want to hear more about what your job entails. For people that don't know, that think that you're just the guy that runs on with a water bottle when someone gets hurt in a game, what else does your job entail as head athletic trainer and also director of sports science? Sure. So I look over three main domains um, for the club and how, how we really look at sports science here is really anything that is at a high level should be measured, monitored, and can be improved. And so for me, I'm looking at things as far as definitely athletic training domain is one, which is injury, rehab, and evaluation is definitely an area of sports medicine. Another area then is uh, injury prevention. So really looking at the breakdown of physiology, not so much a a medical injury, but what things can we do to keep these guys optimized, keep them running, keep them available is a big metric for us. And then uh, data analytics and, you know, the analysis of both those areas and then including some performance metrics in that because at the end of the day, the game still matters and, and that's why we're all still here. So combining those three kind of data sets as massive as each one are into something that's actionable for the club and something that can drive decision making. I want to ask a couple of questions based off of that. And the first one is just kind of, we see players now with all kinds of wearable technology and that sort of thing. Just about every soccer player you see has something on them now that's tracking different performance metrics and different data. What types of data are you collecting on a regular basis? So in each one of those areas, we have uh, try to keep it to one main data source just to keep things clean. And each one is a giant rabbit hole that you can jump in and really get lost in. So we try to have as few rabbit holes as possible. 
So on the performance side, we, we stick to GPS, um, and Stat Sports is the company we use, and, and that's really popular within soccer, especially in the United States, as they're with U.S. soccer, and it makes a data sharing between the national teams and whatnot really easy. So we've been using Stat Sports on that side. On the injury prevention side, we really have dug into to prevention software is usually using thermography in the last year, and that really helps us gauge players' individual muscle breakdowns and guides our recovery programs that we're doing here. And then on top of that, we'll, we'll pull a bunch of performance stats that the league gives us from some panoramic cameras and performance tracking companies that they have signed league deals with that we get on all the games. So you mentioned that each data point can be a potential rabbit hole that you can dive down into and that sort of thing. So how do you go about, what's the process for, as you gather data, assigning meaning to it as it relates to specific players? Yeah, so, you know, there's two kind of general schools of thought on how to make the data manageable, right? So you can look at it from an individual standpoint, really look at trends, and that's where baselining becomes really efficient and effective for those things, seeing how much a person has changed, improved, or regressed in that manner. But then there's the other mindset, which is group-based stuff, right? So looking at team averages, looking at positions, comparing those things to other teams, other groups, other positional stats that you've captured over the years. And I think that's something that's really accelerated in our league particularly because the MLS is a single entity league. It really encourages data sharing and cooperation between different staffs and different clubs where that really doesn't happen internationally anywhere else. So I'm curious now about, you said baselining. My understanding of that means that you'd have a base level understanding for this is the, the typical performance of this player. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, the, the, the kind of general idea is you take the test when they're at their peak or, or when they don't have anything else going on, and you just kind of see where they are. So you know, a lot of people do that preseason. Um, we, we like performance testing, or I prefer really performance testing of that nature at the end of the season when we know that they're healthy and they've been performing well and their body's uh, capable of doing those testing. And then when they come back for preseason or they get injured later, then we can compare those uh, metrics to when they were completely healthy and available and performing well. So I want to take a specific player and use him as a case example for how you handled an injury circumstance and player for FC Dallas a couple of years back in 2017 uh, named Mauro Diaz tore his Achilles at the end of the 2016 season. And so I want you to just walk through the process of, okay, how did you manage his recovery and what kind of metrics were you able to uh, to utilize to help him best recover from that, from what is a pretty catastrophic injury for a soccer player? Yeah, so that was a really um, interesting one where, you know, he didn't have any signs or symptoms leading up to it. So, uh, and biomechanically, he's had a lot of deficiencies there that we had identified. He had a huge injury history, and statistically, that's always been shown as the number one leading indicator of uh, injury risk is previous injury. So, we were always kind of watching him with a close eye and trying to pick apart those things. And for us, then doing a rehab progress, you're not as confident with the baseline, right? Because we knew that he had high injury risk beforehand. So it's tough to, to be justified in bringing someone back to those baselines when you knew that they weren't ideal to begin with, right? So now you're looking at normative data and really trying to get him back to a level that he probably wasn't at when you got him for sure and probably hasn't been at for quite some time. So you know, then you're looking at normative data changes the metrics that you take. So we really went to speed, agility, quickness data to really know that he was back, data that we had collected in preseason and postseason the years before to make sure that, uh, you know, he was at least as quick as he was. But again, 
that not being uh, ideal for us because we thought he could be maybe quicker if he was biomechanically more clean. So then we, we looked at positions and we looked at other comparable players to him and really used that to set the standard. Um, we compounded that with uh, then physiologic metrics and again separating out those domains and different metrics for those. So that previous metrics being the performance side then looking at the physiology side and saying, okay, how is he responding to these metrics, right? So especially with um, the thermography that I mentioned earlier, we're able to see, okay, we know the load that he's doing, and you know he's done this typical load before, these accelerations before, okay? But with that, we're able to see that his body isn't reacting well to it. He's inflamed in this area, he's breaking down this area, and, and we still have to put those fires out, right? Even though it's not quite a high load, for him historically, or even normative-wise, his body is breaking those things down. So that let us avoid secondary injuries during the process. And also when we got to a point where we knew he would has normalized uh, to himself, uh, to his baselines, but his body still wasn't reacting. So again, that kind of confirmed our thought that um, biomechanically something wasn't correct. So then we were able to... to really dig in and, and analyze him from that standpoint and say, okay, let's make him better than he was when we got him. You know, when a player comes back from injury, oftentimes the healing on the mental side takes just as long, if not longer, than the healing on the physical side. They might be physically back to the point where they're ready to play again. But how much of this information do you share with a player? Take Maro, for instance. How much information were you giving him along the way to make sure that mentally he was prepared to take the field again, not just physically? Well, I think to start, it's always helpful to give them goals, right? All these guys are goal-oriented. And so for me, you can frame up and even gamify some things. And that's a big term and methodology for me is that um, with these, you, again, I don't want them to get lost and, and they're not as passionate about this data stuff as I am. So it has to be actual and meaningful for them. So if I can give them something that we can track along the way that gamifies um, their intent and also not only gamifies but directs their behavior patterns, right? So if, uh, for example, we know in this phase coming up, range of motion is uh, his biggest indicator of success. Well, I want to give him a way to measure that, right? And um, and not for him to do it solely, but a, but a gauge for him to say, okay, I'm progressing along the path. And if I'm not, am I doing all the things at home that um, I need to do to encourage this path and this progress? And so that's really helped us with all our players that we've got, done long-term rehabs for with framing what they're doing when they're away from us, right? So because we don't want them to do things uh, at home that are negative or, um, or do things that might take away or set them up for setbacks. But there are things that you can do around the clock that can help both of us get to our goal. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear just about the amount of information you're sharing and, and doing things at home, not just when they're at the team facility. Obviously, you have to have a good relationship with the, the head coach and the people that are making decisions about playing players and using players and how to best manage players to make sure that they're at their best physically. And obviously, there's going to be a little bit of a give and take there. I would assume that at times, you know, coaches are going to have to push players based on circumstances and based on the fact that their job is to win games. And you're also trying to to help the club win games while also keep players at peak performance level and have that peak health. How important is it for someone in your role to have a good relationship with the head coach and the people that are making the decisions? Yeah, it's everything. I think at this level, no one has a job if they don't figure that out. 
So what I tell new and upcoming sports scientists, athletic trainers is this, is that I don't mind going, uh, get on podcasts like this or going to conferences and sharing all the stats and all the um, science that we're doing, right? I think that makes the whole industry better. Uh, at the same time, that's not why I keep my job, right? No one's expecting me to do those things I do because I know they're the right thing and they help me do my job. But, but what makes us different from other clubs and our success rate in this department is the art of how we do our job. And, and most of that is communication and managing personalities and figuring out what's successful for our staff. And without you know the support of Oscar Pereja these last five seasons, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do anything. Um, part of that, to your point, though, is also teaching him and letting him teach me. And on our side, what, we've t- what we taught him and how we work together is his uh, first year we sat down and um, he said, Skylar, you know, because we had worked together in Colorado with the Rapids previously. And he said, you know, I love everything you're doing, but you know, I really want a, a mentality here that, that we work hard every day and we're not worried about you know, or stressed about getting injured. I want one that we're uh, here to push 100%. And so what we did is, is we kind of configured our whole um, department to be a recovery lab, something that helps you get back to 100% every day. And that execution, just that simple uh, change in name, but also the execution of how we did towards the goal of recovering instead of injuries or being focused around pain, um, really allowed us to have a different atmosphere in our club and supported his, um, his methodology, and then therefore he could support me. And so with that, again, without that, I don't have anything. The other thing we did that worked out really well is I gave him, um, just like I give my athletes, a measure of success for me and for my department. And so what we use there is a metric we call availability percentage. And what availability percentage is, is the percent of our squad that's available every game for selection. Not whether they start, not how much they play, but how many guys are available uh, on his roster. So is it 100%, 30 of 30? Uh, or is it you know 28 guys or whatever that is and then look at that average over the season and so uh, you know we want to always be over 87 percent um, availability average for the season and so that's really helped gamify and uh, kind of frame a lot of our discussions when I talk to Oscar and it makes the communication easier to where I'll talk to him and I'll say listen Oscar I know you want this guy next week but if I can keep him out uh, one more game then I know it hurts my availability now, but I think it avoids him getting re-injured later, which would hurt the availability rate even more. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that's a, an interesting way that you have also made your job goal-oriented job, the same way that uh, many of the players are goal-oriented and you know the coaches and the, the entire organization is goal-oriented. It's, it's interesting to see you put a number to it that then you have a goal to shoot for as well that is easily communicable with the coach, I think is a really awesome thing that you're doing there, something I really haven't heard of too much. And we, we've talked a lot about the first team up until this point, the, the senior level players, but you're also dealing with seven different youth teams, you know, the top team. In the, in the FC Dallas Youth Academy system. What kind of challenges are presented there with youth players that maybe you don't see as much with the senior level players? Yeah, um, I'm really glad we're talking about that because, again, that's uh, uh, my big drive as director for the club because uh, if anybody knows anything about FC Dallas, our passion is youth development. And, and we embrace it more than any other club in the MLS, and we've had huge success, one of the most successful academy programs in all of MLS. So we're really proud of our academy and our model there to develop them, get them on the first team, and then develop them into the, the next great players across the world. 
Um, so on that regard though, it changes a lot of things for me in priority. So it's not just about availability, which is still something I track and, and passionate about at that level, but that's uh, not the only thing we're looking at. And it's not just about performance at that level. Like I said, the, the model of that uh, academy is development. So now from the physiology side and, and even the performance side, we're looking at, are these kids developing on track? Uh, are they going to turn into someone that we can have on our first team roster in the next few years? So it just totally changes the metrics we look at and how we compare that data, uh, what pools and what data sources uh, become normative data for us. Uh, it's a totally different way to look at things, and that's been really uh, fun and exciting to dive into. Yeah, that's really interesting because I suppose at each phase of an athlete, there are certain points, I suppose, where, you know, an athlete that's getting into his later 20s is evolving as a player. But I would imagine that you see that evolution really quickly with players that are teenage years, you know, 14, 15, just because as they get older, their bodies change so much. You might have a guy grow three inches over the summer or something like that, that maybe you weren't expecting or, you know, something along those lines. So that makes that that adds an added wrinkle, I suppose, uh, to the job that you have to do with some of these younger players. Yeah, it, it, it's a whole different thing. Change is the right word, right? Because they can progress or they can regress as well, right? And, and as a physiology um, industry, it, that whole adolescent phase and really youth to adolescent until you really hit maturity uh, is still kind of uh, mysterious to us. We're not sure what's happening day to day, moment to moment in the adolescent changing body, right? So some of these ebbs and flows uh, might be part of the process and natural, uh, at the same time, while they're going through those flows or they set up for injury, should we expect performance decreases while they're gaining those inches, you know, and, and the rest of the body hasn't caught up? It, it, it's challenges like that that are hard to say. At the same time, where it gets difficult is, all right, if we see that regression and, and it, we're not sure that it's part of the process or not, okay, is this kid regressing and therefore, as a business, should we move on to the next kid? And really, that's where we try to help with the physiology measurements of development and acquiring these huge pools of data we have over these years in particular age groups. And then comparing those kids to the curve of that age group and seeing where does he sit on the curve in terms of muscle girth size, especially for his height, right? But also by what predicted height he is, you know? Um, he, he's going to be. There's a lot of exciting me metrics and algorithms out there from um, Toronto and, and other places that have accurately predicted adult height. And so based on that, then we can really say, all right, what pro players did we have at that height, right? What muscle girth size, what speeds were they at, right? And so is he progressing along that curve naturally towards those goals? Or is he well behind the curve? And so that's helped frame a lot of things for us. Obviously, always adding in the um, the performance aspect of it too. How good of a soccer player they are? How's their soccer intelligence? And so it's funny. We were we started doing that in, in 2012, and then recently in the last uh, year and a half, maybe two years now, U.S. Soccer uh, started a new initiative with their newly signed director of sports science um, that is called BioBanding. And they're taking it to the next level. They're looking at a lot of similar data points that I am, but they're suggesting now that you take those kids who are currently in the same buckets development-wise and have them train together. So you're all pushing towards the same goals at the same rate um, with kids that are at your development level, not your age level. 
And so that's a really interesting mind point. It has a whole another set of logistical issues with it. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, that's really interesting. And that's almost the next level of what we're talking about. So you're kind of talking about, you know, next level and some some innovations maybe that U.S. soccer is, is undertaking as they look at youth players. What else excites you about what you're seeing come down the pipeline in, in the field of sports science, just as for people in your particular job, who is innovating, who's doing exciting things, and, and, and what excites you these days? Yeah, there's a couple of technologies I'm, I'm really excited about. So yeah, as you know, as we talked about uh at the beginning of the podcast was GPS is pretty much, you know, uh, across the board with all, all of soccer in the world now and really gaining popularity in other sports. But I really think that um, that's going to be replaced in the short term here with video tracking and a system that, that gets you the same metrics as GPS, but through a video analysis. And what that helps you do from a technology standpoint is scale the technology so much faster. Right. So now if you don't need one device per every kid you have, right, you only need one camera for unlimited users. Well, that helps you do all my teams. So now I don't have to buy seven different sets of 30 um, stat sports GPSs. Right. I need one camera system. I can do as many teams as you can. But also it, it raises the game in terms of. Um, now, if I'm playing 11 v 11 against a team from out of town, I can get stats on both sides. Now I can compare my guys to the guys we're playing, right? And so that opens up a whole new can of worms, but also in an exciting way that we can scale this technology to everyone and then to our youth um, system as well and really give them actionable data and, and helps with scouting and, and all those things. So I'm really excited about that technology on the performance side. On the physiology side, there's two. Again, I, I'm really excited about thermography. We've been demo, demoing that for the last year and a half, and um, company Thermohuman is the one that's really uh, uh, elevated the analysis of that data. Um, so we've been uh, partners with them for a while now, um, and that's really helped us on the recovery side. But also from the optimization side, there's a, really been a development with sweat monitoring and a company called Kenzen. Um, out of San Francisco is really leading the way in real-time sweat uh, monitoring, uh, including heart rate, respiration rate, but also sweat volume and body temperature. And the cool thing about that is it's all metrics that we can really affect in real time. So now you're talking about watching somebody during the game and, you know, if um, uh, things that we can cool them down, we can give them more drinks, we can give them more electrolytes at halftime, um, things of that nature to really help their performance. So that kind of turns us into a pit crew on the sideline, and that's really exciting. That is really exciting because a lot of times it feels like in a game you have to be reactionary to what happens, but it, data like that would actually help you guys be more proactive to preventing a cramp or an injury or something like that than maybe you've been able to be in the past. That's right. That's exactly right, yeah. And then I think the then one bigger umbrella thing that, that's gained popularity the last couple of years, and there's some really exciting companies out, is, um, is sleep testing. And we use a local Dallas startup called uh, Essentials to Perform ETP. And we'll do sleep testing uh, three or four times a year with our players and really figuring out, are they optimizing on eight hours of their day to really let their body recover, which affects performance, mental, physical, it affects recovery, and all the things that we've talked about um, in one kind of umbrella uh, sweep. And why I like it so much is that you're hitting it one time, one consistent time. Um, which is eight hours for the body to, to recover. But if you're not optimizing that 
recovery time, then you're slowly letting your uh, the stress of playing the game catch up to you. That's really fascinating. I think you might have to take away Fortnite from some of the players. I'm not going to name any names, but I follow them <laughs> on Instagram, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, sleep uh, screen time before sleep is a big thing, but yeah, you're, you're spot on with that. That is Skylar Richards. He is the head athletic trainer and director of sports science for FC Dallas, talking about some really exciting developments, some really cool stuff that they're doing there at FC Dallas in the field of sports science. Skylar, thank you so much for the time today, man. Oh, really enjoyed it, guys. I look forward to doing more. All right, that is all for this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcasts. Thank you to our guests, Amy Mitchell, Alec Weber, and Skylar Richards for taking time to talk to us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. We certainly do appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this content, you can go find more just like it at marketscale.com. Search through the industries, find more content there that you like. And also, we'd appreciate it that if you enjoyed what you heard today, if you go on whatever platform you're listening on and leave us a nice review, five stars, something along those lines, we would certainly appreciate that as well. That just helps us make more great content like this for you to enjoy. But until next time, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you for listening.